Holy Gospel according to John, the 20th chapter. When it was evening on that day, the the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. The Gospel of the Lord. I invite you to be seated. Thomas's faith was traumatized. Thomas's faith was traumatized. He had seen and experienced things that were so awful, so evil, so terrifying that he couldn't reconcile them with the teachings of his faith. He was consumed with grief. He had lost hope in the promises of God. He wasn't with the other disciples when they gathered. You know, it happens. Something terrible happens in somebody's life. Maybe it's the loss of a spouse or the sudden loss of a a child or whatever it is. And then someone who's come to church every single Sunday suddenly just stops showing up and they drift away. They have doubts. Everyone who has ever had faith has doubts. We aren't always certain that God exists. We aren't always trusting that God is good. Some days we aren't even sure that God is powerful enough to really make a difference. And then, of course, there's Jesus' resurrection, which is hard to grasp even on the best days. It's okay. Doubt is a sign of humility. It means that 
Uh, we recognize there are some things that we're going to never understand, some things we'll probably never figure out. Anne Lamont once said the opposite of faith is not doubt, but certainty. Think about that. The opposite of faith is not doubt, but certainty. We doubters, it turns out, are in really good company. The Bible is filled with stories of faithful doubters. In fact, everybody that's written about in the Bible at some point had doubts. Abraham is the father of our faith, and it's reckoned to him as righteousness, that he had such great faith and obedience. And there was his wife, Sarah. But before they became Abraham and Sarah, they were Abram and Sarai, just a couple of people who had received a promise from God that they would one day receive a land and that Abraham would father descendants more numerous than the stars in the night sky. And it sounded really good, and so they agreed to go with God wherever God would lead them. The problem is decades passed. It's one thing when you feel like God's told you something, but when it takes decades and decades and then nothing seems to be happening or going according to plan, it's easy to have doubts. And so Abraham, Abram at the time, and Sarai grow old, and they still haven't had any children, and he still doesn't have an heir, and they're having their doubts, and they've lost hope in God's promises. It happens. So they decide that it must have been a misunderstanding on their part, or, or maybe God has just forgotten all about them. So much time has passed. So they try to make the promises come true on their own. They start finagling forcing things to try to happen, and their lives begin to look like an episode from All My Children or The Guiding Light. God has to keep showing up and re-promising, and finally God sends messengers to them. A couple of angels were told, messengers, and when they tell Abram and Sarah, who is now in her 80s, that she is finally going to be pregnant, they both doubt the news. And Sarah laughs out loud, and nine months later, she has a son, and they name him Laughter. Sarah doubts. Abraham doubted, yet their faith was reckoned to them as righteousness, which tells me it's okay if we doubt too. Then there are the Israelites in the wilderness, right? We think of them as, okay, they were faithful people, God's people. God had just sent all the plagues on Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. And then there had been the grand escape where God had, you know, the army of Pharaoh was pursuing the Israelites and they came to the Red Sea or the Reed Sea and suddenly the waters parted and they passed on dry ground, which was one miracle. And then when they got to the other side, Pharaoh's entire army of chariots was right on their heels and suddenly the waters came over and drowned everybody that was in the army and that's the next miracle. And then God fed them with this magical, miraculous stuff, this flakes that fell from heaven in the morning and tasted like honey and God appeared to them, we're told, leading them in a pillar of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. I mean, you just can't get more obvious than this, right? And then Moses, their leader, goes, leaves the base camp and goes up high on the mountain. Picture Everest. And he's up there for a really long time. And he's talking with God, but he's gone so much longer than they expected that they get nervous down in base camp. And they begin to wonder if God has abandoned them. And so they come up with a plan B, just in case 
Moses' God isn't for real or isn't on their side anymore. They say, well, you know, there was that God in Egypt, the one the Egyptians worshipped, the El, who rides on the back of a bull. This is how El's always pictured. So they made this little uh, statue, a little bovine statue for, for themselves, and they began to worship that. What's amazing is that when Moses comes back down the mountain, he's carrying the Ten Commandments, you know, what hand-carved by God on these stone tablets, and he discovers that the people have betrayed God and worshipped a false god named El, and so he's really mad about it, but it turns out that God was offering those commandments, which were supposed to be a blessing to God's people, knowing the whole time God was making up the commandments, God knew already what the people were doing down there in base camp. And God still claimed them as God's chosen people who would be a light to the nations. Imagine that. Then we can get to the New Testament. There's John the Baptist. You probably heard about him. And John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. And he also kind of has a miraculous uh, birth to an elderly mother. And it's, it's the Holy Spirit is so powerful in John the Baptist, even before he's born, that in his mother's womb, he recognizes Jesus as the Messiah and leaps with joy. When Jesus comes to him 30 years later for a baptism, John tells his own disciples, this is the one who takes away the sin of the world. Follow him. Now that's faith. But some time has passed, and John has now been in prison. He's been arrested. He's thrown into a prison. These are really, really, really bad places. And while he's in this dungeon, chained up, John gets discouraged. And he begins to have doubts about God and about Jesus and about everything that has been reported in his faith. And he gets reports that Jesus is gentle, and Jesus is going around... Uh, uh, welcoming sinners and not rebuking them. This isn't what John imagined. He always thought that the Messiah was going to be the one who was going to come in righteousness and judge the people and separate the sheep from the goats and the wheat from the chaff. So he calls two of his own disciples and he says, I want you to go to Jesus and ask him a question for me. He does this from prison. And the question is, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? That's somebody who's lost faith. And Jesus sends word back to John and says, go back and report to John what you see and hear, that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. And blessed is the man who does, not lose, who does not fall away on account of me. So the messengers go back to John at the prison, and as soon as they have left the scene, Jesus turns to the crowd and says, not a greater one is born of woman than John the Baptist. There's no condemnation for John's doubts. There's not a greater one born of woman than John the Baptist, a faithful man who doubted. John's gospel 
Mary Magdalene and some of the other women go to the tomb and, they tell, and then they come running back and tell all the rest of the disciples, we have seen the risen Christ. We have seen Jesus and he is alive. And then they say, we have not only seen him, but we have touched him and talked to him. But the disciples didn't believe it. So Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved run to the tomb and report, and then they also come running back and report that what the women have said is true and the disciples don't believe them either. In Matthew, the 28th chapter, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Worshipping and doubting all at the same time, that's faith. Thomas is not there when Jesus shows up after Easter, not with the, not the community, he's not with the fellowship. His friends come to him and they tell him, we've seen Jesus, we've seen the risen Lord, he's alive. And of course he can't believe them. Sometimes other people's faith around us is enough when we don't have faith. Sometimes that's enough. We can just ride on their faith. This time it isn't enough. Thomas needs his own encounter. He needs to feel it for himself. He needs to put his fingers in the holes where the nails were. He needs to stick his hand into the big wound in Jesus' side. And he says, only then will I believe. But Jesus doesn't leave any of us behind. Jesus could have gone on and forgotten about Thomas, but Jesus doesn't. Instead, he shows up a second time when Thomas is with the disciples and he greets them all and he doesn't mock Thomas and he doesn't scold Thomas and he doesn't kick him out of the group. Instead, he says, put your finger here in my hand. Put your hand in my side. Don't doubt, but believe. Even Jesus doubted. We lose track of that. We think, oh, he knew everything, right? Foreordained, he knew it. He never doubted. He always knew the plan, but that is not what Scripture reveals. In fact, in Matthew 27, about the ninth hour, we're told, as Jesus is hanging there on that cross, fighting for his life, dying, he cries out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. It's Psalm 22. He's praying the psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. You know, we all have those dark nights of the soul from time to time, and especially when the suffering gets really great. Eli Wiesel, in his memoir, Night, writes about a time in Auschwitz when his mother and sister had been killed, and he said, Never should I forget that nocturnal silence which deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget these moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. And then, he says, he witnessed something in the camp there in the barracks one night. 
It was God's trial. Three rabbis got together asking, you know, how could God allow the death of all of these children in the gas chambers, this massacre, to happen? And so they put God on trial. They literally held a, a trial and testified against God night after night. And after several evenings, it resulted in a guilty verdict. And then he says, the rabbis conducted their evening prayers and worshiped the God they had just convicted. That is faith. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Faith is knowing we don't have it all figured out. And then we keep on doing the things that God has told us to do the best we can in spite of the doubt. Mother Teresa, there's a, a book published, Come Be My Light. It's a collection published posthumously of letters that she wrote to her spiritual director over a period of decades. And on September of 1979, even as she was working with the poorest of the poor and the outcasts on the streets of Calcutta and growing this amazing ministry, which she's renowned for around the world, she wrote these words. I've had this terrible sense of loss since 1949 or 1950. That was uh, 30 years of a sense of untold loss. This untold darkness, this loneliness, this continual longing for God, which gives me that pain deep down in my heart. Darkness is such that I really do not see, neither with my mind nor with my reason. The place of God in my soul is blank. There is no God in me. When the pain of longing is so great, I just long and long for God, and then it is that I feel he doesn't want me. He is not there. And the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see and listen and I do not hear. For more than 40 years of ministry, she was uncertain of the presence and love of God. This woman who had once heard God's voice crystal clear, speaking like a bell in her ear, telling her to take up this ministry, was now silent. Why did God let her endure so many years of this pain? Maybe it's so her parting ministry could be to people who have themselves experienced some doubt, some absence of God in our lives. The atheists, the doubters, the seekers, the believers, every one of us. The good news is that God has always used the doubters to proclaim the good news. Always. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, Jesus said. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Amen.